So we come to the second part of James. I started it last time, uh, where we'll be, be discussing trials and suffering. And you may think, didn't Josh just do that a couple weeks ago? And yes, yes, he did. And as the Lord would have it, we're, we're going to tackle that topic again, but from a very different angle. And even as I was uh, talking to Josh after his sermon a couple weeks ago, at first I was like, oh, I'm going to do this topic again. Uh, but as his sermon went on, uh, I was again encouraged by, by the wisdom of God and how on similar topics it can come from different angles. And, and it just demonstrates all the various ways he cares for us. So this morning we'll be in James 1, 2 through 4. And so apparently I'm channeling my, my inner Jared as, as so far I'm only averaging two verses uh, per week. But so it is. Uh, let me read the, the text for this morning again just to keep it fresh in our minds. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're to think of someone you look up to, someone whose wise advice and insight on the ups and downs of the Christian life is always helpful and timely, there's a pretty good chance they've gone through some kind of trial or suffering. Maybe you know a prayer warrior whose faithful habits and dependence on God regularly encourage many people. I'm willing to bet they have gone through some kind of various trial in their life. Or maybe you know a Christian who's incredibly gentle and compassionate, who knows how to soothe and comfort when you're struggling. I'm certain they've experienced some kind of suffering. Suffering has a way of bringing out the best or worst in people. The name Horatio Spafford may not ring a bell for many of you, but there's a good chance many of you are familiar with some of his work. Horatio was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago with a wife and five kids, one son and four daughters. Their son tragically died of pneumonia in 1871, Later that year, most of his business investments were lost in the Chicago fire. A few years later, in 1873, his wife and four daughters boarded a ship headed to Europe while Horatio planned to follow in a few days after tending to some business in Chicago. About four days into his family's voyage, another ship collided with theirs and their ship sunk in about 12 minutes. Amazingly, somehow a small boat found Horatio's wife clinging to some wreckage and she survived. But all four of their daughters didn't make it. A few days later, Horatio got on a ship to meet his grieving wife in Europe. And while crossing the same waters that he just lost his four daughters to, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And this, of course, is a hymn that many of us know and still sing today. It is well with my soul. You see, Horatio is a man who worked out James, 2, James 1, 2 through 4 in his own life. In our text this morning, James brings together trials and joy. And while at first glance it may seem like those two words don't belong together, James insists that they certainly do, and he wants to make sure we understand why. And this morning we can organize our thoughts under one big question. How can trials foster joy? How can trials foster joy? And we'll see this answered in three parts. 
First, through intentional reflection. Second, through, through faithful endurance. And third, through an awareness of their purpose. So first, through intentional reflection. As I was thinking about how James started this, starts this letter, it reminded me of, of kind of the two main ways people enter water. You know, mainly people start their day of swimming by gently going down the stairs or walking slowly into the beach, into the water. But then there's other people who start their day of swimming by just jumping off the dock or jumping off the diving board. Nothing gradual about it, they just jump right in. James's writing is kind of like the, the, the friend who jumps right in, right? Nothing gradual about it, no gradual introduction, he just gets right to business. It can almost seem like a shock to our system to have him jump into such an intense and weighty feeling topic so quickly. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. It only takes James two verses to get to his first command. And while it may seem sudden, more than anything, it points to the concern, care, and love James has for the people he's writing to. If you remember from last time, James is most likely written into a context of primarily Jewish believers who had been scattered or dispersed because of persecution. And as they were struggling, finding their place as persecuted Christians in the first century, one of the primary things they are in need of is help figuring out how their allegiance to Christ works itself out in day-to-day life. If you recall from last time, there, there were not a bunch of different Christian writings being passed around they could read and glean wisdom from. Right? In fact, the book of James is very likely the earliest existing Christian document that we know of, written only 15 years or so after the resurrection of Christ. So James is writing into a context of Christians who feel the, the weight and daily struggle of life, persecution because of their faith, and all sorts of difficult trials that never seem to come at the most convenient times or ways. And this is exactly where James starts. Let's talk about the trials you're experiencing. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. James starts with the command, consider it a great joy. And when we read this, for many of us, uh, questions come before we're willing to just accept what it says. What do you mean by trials? What, What kind of trials? What does it mean to consider it a great joy? How can trials be a great joy? Why why a command? That's a little harsh. But you see, this this kind of command almost guarantees some kind of emotional response and reaction from the reader. Quite possibly unwanted emotions. Maybe it seems offensive. Maybe it's confusing. Maybe it triggers sadness or anger. Maybe it brings comfort. But whatever it is, James wants to press into it and shed light on how we as Christians should think through trials. How should we mentally and emotionally approach trials? The word for trials here, generally speaking, can refer to an external trial or difficulty that happens to someone, or it can also refer to an internal temptation or enticement. Here, James is using it as a former, as an external trial that happens to someone. Later on in the chapter, in verse 13 and 14, he'll use it to speak of, an in, of internal temptations, where he says that no one undergoing trials should say, I'm being tempted by God. But in our text this morning, it's this external kind of trial that James is speaking of. And as James was writing this, it's very likely that the specific kind of trials he had in mind 
or those stemming from persecution. Throughout this letter, James speaks of a handful of different manifestations of persecution. Stress because of economic poverty, favoritism for the wealthy and against the poor, economic injustice and abuse, blasphemy of Jesus Christ, the rich exploiting the poor, and so on. These Christians were not only surrounded by various kinds of persecution, but they felt that persecution personally. And while James is writing to his context of first century persecuted Christians, we can certainly benefit from his wisdom here too. Because whether it's persecution we face because of our faith or any, any number of other various trials, we are all painfully aware of the difficulties of life. And we need to hear the instruction James has for this area of our lives. The CSB translation reads, Consider it a great joy. Other translations have something like, Count it all joy, or consider it a pure joy. And these are all helpful and come from slightly different angles, but we do need to make sure we understand what exactly James is getting at here. Because this could actually be very discouraging if we don't understand how this all, or great, or pure word functions. So to start off, it does not mean all is in everything. James is not saying consider everything joyful when you experience trials. James is not saying the only feeling you should have, the only emotions you should have when you're experiencing trials is that of happiness and cheerfulness and joy. And this helps us understand joy, the word joy too, because we, we, are, we are not to find joy itself in the trial, right? We're not to find joy in the trial itself or the suffering. We need to make sure we understand this. It's not the suffering itself that is joyful, but the fruit of that suffering. And we'll get to that more in the next couple of verses. But at least for now, we need to make sure we understand what this does not mean. Joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. When the phone rings with horrible news, when the unthinkable happens, it's okay to experience emotion in the midst of trials and fearful sorrow. What did Jesus do when Lazarus died? He wept. And this is actually even instructive for us with how we care and love for one another when someone's experiencing trials and suffering. Right? This idea of considering it a great joy in the midst of trials is not always, not always a verse we should use to comfort people when they're in the midst of it. Right? James isn't just flippantly throwing out this idea that we should be happy or excited when trials come. The reason for joy is not for the suffering or trial itself, but for the fruit and character that trial induces which we'll come to shortly. So what are we to make of this joy James speaks of? What is this word joy getting at anyway? Well, part of our clue is how James starts this verse. He tells us to consider. This is a a verb of thought, not emotion. James is not telling us how we should feel. He's telling us how we should think. How we should consider or ponder and reflect on our circumstances when we're in the midst of trials. He's not commanding us to feel, but how to think. Which means joy is not as much as an emotion as it is a state of being. One commentator says, joy may be defined as a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. What is our first gut reaction to a trial? Emotion. Our default is emotion. 
Think back to trials in your life. Think back to some big difficult event or time. Right in the moment it happened, or maybe even if you were nervous that something bad might happen in the future, what was your first reaction? Emotion. Maybe it's just me, I'm guessing not, but often it's emotion. We all know our feelings can take over so quickly. Grief, anxiety, desperation, anger, fear. In a split second, they can take over. James is not instructing us to not have emotions, but he's saying we should not only have emotions and let emotions take over. Instead, we need to have this pure, great, all-encompassing joy. And that's what we need to lean into. Not our emotions. We need to lean into the joy. We need to lean into the deep, steady, stable, settled contentment and trust in God. That's true joy. And this is so important because did you notice who will be experiencing trials? As much as we'd like, like there to be, there's no if in this verse. Considered a great joy if you experience trials? No. When? When you experience trials. Pain, trials, suffering does not discriminate. Every single person on earth, some more and less than others, but every single person will have difficulties in their life. And just to set trials and, and suffering in, in general in their proper theological context, trials and suffering, just, just to be clear from the, from the beginning, are not God punishing us for our sin. Okay, we need, we need to make sure we know that. Now some trials come as a consequence of sin, right? Come as a consequence of sin we've engagement, engaged in. If you, if you do something and wind up in jail, all the difficulties that come with that are absolutely a consequence of your sin. Right? But many trials we experience are not a consequence of sin we've engaged in. They're just a result of living in a fallen and broken world. But trials are not a punishment for our sin. Christ bore the punishment for our sin on the cross. Period. Completely and finally, forever and done. Our sins have been sufficiently dealt with by Christ. So, so this is one of those theological foundation types of things that James kind of just assumes rather than develops or really even talks about at all. And I say all that just so we can be reminded of how to view trials in general because some, even those who claim Christianity, would say that trials occur because you don't have enough faith or something of that kind. And that's not helpful. James says, let's talk about trials. Something every single person will experience. And here is how we need to approach them consider them a great joy. Intentionally, mindfully, work hard at thinking about your trials in terms of pure, deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. Joy is not a feeling, but an exercise in thinking correctly about the place of trials in our lives. And we'll build on this more, but for now we need to know that we, we are being commanded to think about the trials in a certain way. Not, not a feeling, but a way of thinking. So, James told us what we need to do when we're in the face of trials. Intentionally reflect and consider it a great joy. But he definitely doesn't stop there. James doesn't leave us hanging, but he starts helping us understand why. Why should we do the hard work of training our thoughts to be joyful in the midst of trials and many different emotions? So we come to our second point, because it builds faithful endurance. And we see this in verse 3. 
Why can we consider trials a great joy? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. To start, uh, verse 3, we're, we're going to get a little bit into the grammatical weeds. Um, but bear with me for a second. So this, this phrase, translated because you know, is a participle. And it can be translated as causal, as it is here in the CSB. Because you know, the testing of your faith induces, produces endurance. But this can also legitimately be translated with the emphasis not being on the idea of causality, but as sharing in the imperatival force of the main verb, which is consider. Maybe you find this stuff interesting, maybe you don't, right? And that's fine too, but what does all this mean? Well, it means that verse 3 could also be translated as something like regard or consider. The testing of your faith is something that produces endurance. In other words, it can be taken as a command like verse 2. There's not necessarily a, a consensus among scholars, but I'm inclined to think that it should be taken more as a command like, like verse 2, because similar to verse 2, which is considered a great joy, this helps emphasize the in-the-midst-of-trials work we must do. In other words, this isn't something we know only in hindsight, only looking back on, but also in the midst of trials. I don't know about you, but at least for me, even though it's not always easy, it can be easier to look back on trials and know that they had purpose than to know they have purpose right when you're in the midst of them. I mean, I, I can look back and see how crucial a certain trial was in, in my process of sanctification. I could stand up here for a long time and talk about all the different trials I've been through and how I know God had purpose in them, how he taught me, corrected me, matured me, and sanctified me. I can see that looking back. I know that because my faith was tested, God produced endurance. But in the midst of a trial, that can be tough. When you're in the thick of it with so many different emotions and feelings fighting for prominence, it's not easy to be aware of God's purposes in your life in a way that, be con that can be considered a great joy a pure joy. And that's why James comes to us with this instruction. Because it's in the midst of suffering when we typically do, not do right, we don't need to be reminded to have emotions in the midst of suffering. Or maybe not even in the midst of suffering, but, but waiting and being uncertainty, uncertain of a, a potential trial or something coming down the line, that can be incredibly difficult too. The constant fear of what may be coming down the line. But James says, regard your suffering as a producer of great joy. And then we have this, this phrase, the testing of your faith. And actually, the only other place in the New Testament this word that this phrase comes from is found is in 1 Peter 1.7, where it's translated as, as proven character. It's found a couple times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in both those cases, it's used to speak of gold or, cis, or silver being refined by fire. And that's the idea James is getting at here. That the testing of our faith is not, to, is not meant to determine whether or not someone has faith, but it's instead meant to refine and purify your faith. And here we can even, even just take a moment to appreciate the intensely practical nature of James, right? Because even though he's not saying it, what is he describing here? He's describing the process of sanctification. This entire section this morning can be looked at through the lens of sanctification. Trials and suffering are, are not the only way, but they are one of the primary ways God brings us through the lifelong process of sanctification. 
the process of, of us in step with the Holy Spirit, putting to death sin in our lives, maturing and becoming more and more like Christ, is often worked out through trials and suffering. Through trials, our faith is tested and proven to be authentic, and we grow and mature. And this testing of our faith produces endurance. Sometimes it's translated as steadfastness. The word carries with it the idea of bearing under something in the face of difficulty. So James is saying that the testing of your faith has a goal of producing a steadfast patience and endurance marked by a steady, active, and mindful pursuit of godliness. Patience is is part of the idea here, but but patience alone can often mean just passively waiting. And and what, what James is calling us to is not passive, but active. And we know this to be true, right? Athletes are an easy example of this. Football season is just starting up. And we know that football players don't gain endurance and enduring fitness and improve their skills and performance by just stepping on the field once a week to face their opponent. No, they they improve and gain strength and refine their skills by practicing day after day. The season is just now starting, but these athletes have been practicing and training for months. It's an active dedication to the game and their position over a long duration. Not just a season, but over their entire career. So it's worth asking ourselves, how are we actively pursuing our faith in a way that does not go up and down and all around constantly changing depending on our circumstances, ease of life, trials, or seasons of life? Where do our minds go when trials come? What lies beneath all the emotion that can come? Are we just passively letting things happen to us and letting our heart and mind follow and settle into whatever feelings and emotions grab hold of us the most? We must be actively pursuing, considering, regarding the truth of Christ. Are we doing that? Are we, are we analyzing our lives? Are we, are we thinking through and resting upon Christ and Christ alone? Or maybe we're assuming that That for the Christian life to be successful, it means we need to be happy and and without trials. Or do we consider trials, no matter how small or big, as part of God molding us to be more and more like his son? You see, if we assume the goal of of life is to have a great job and be successful and lots of money and a certain kind of family and certain place in society, and those aren't bad things necessarily, but if we consider that to be the goal in life, when trials come, we'll be devastated. But if we approach life in a way that our main goal is not all these other things, but instead the faithful to be faithful and endure and be a mature Christian, trials will still be hard, but not devastating. Are you actively considering these things? Passivity in the Christian life, even during trials, will not bear productive fruit. If someone just lets trials happen to them, and then they settle into and identify with nothing other than the hurt and pain caused, day after day they can progressively wall themselves off from anything resembling pure joy. About 10 or 11 years ago, when she she was still in grad school, Michael started a new job for a, a quadriplegic woman as her caretaker. The hours and pay were pretty good, and she knew it would be hard work, but it seemed like a good job and a good opportunity. On the first day of this new job, 
the manager of the caretakers informed Michael that in the last two months, eight different caretakers had been fired from, for, from caring for this woman. Eight in the last two months. And determined not to be the ninth in such a short span, uh, Michael gave it her best shot. It was a middle-aged lady who at one point in her life was very able-bodied, but after some sort of tragic accident, I think it was maybe a bicycle accident or something, she was left without the use of her arms and legs. And she was one of the most bitter, controlling, angry people Michael had ever met. Nothing was ever right. Everything always had to be done perfectly, exactly as she instructed. Just a really mean, bitter lady. And not surprisingly, after a week or two, Michael indeed became the ninth caretaker that in the span of a couple months was fired. And in one sense, you get it. She was controlling because she had no ability to do anything on her own. And that made her angry and hurt and bitter. And she leaned into, leaned into and held on to that pain and hurt that she was experiencing. And it boiled over into every aspect of her life. And compare that with someone like Johnny Erickson Tata. I'm sure many of, you, many of you have heard of her. She lived a very active life growing up until the age of 17 when she misjudged the depth of water as she dove into Chesapeake Bay and broke her back, causing her to permanently lose the use of her arms and legs. But she has lived a very different life since her accident than this woman that Michael briefly cared for. And even now in her mid-70s, over 50 years since her life-changing accident, she's not someone who is angry, bitter, and controlling, but godly, joyful, serving, and wise. Listen to what she says in an article she wrote a few years ago. Early on in my paralysis, and almost by accident, I unearthed an unexpected treasure. I opened the word of God and discovered a mine shaft. I dug my paralyzed fingers into the weight of incomprehensible glory, a sweetness with Jesus that made my paralysis, paralysis pale in comparison. In my great joy, I went out and sold everything, trading my resentment and self-pity to buy the ugly field nobody else wanted. And I struck gold. After decades of using the pick and shovel in prayer and scripture, of prayer and scripture, my field has yielded the riches of the kingdom of heaven. I have found a God who is thunderous, full throttle, joy spilling over. He swims in his own bottomless ocean of elation, and he has positively, absolutely driven to share it with us. Why, as he puts it, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, John 15, 11. Jesus is after nothing less than our full joy. So why the difference? How is it that, that a similar life-changing accident can happen to two people and they can have such drastically different responses? Well, one has spent their life act actively thinking about the pain and suffering they've experienced, while the other has spent their life actively thinking about God's purposes, even in the midst of pain and suffering that they've experienced. That, of course, is an extreme example. But it does illustrate the fruit of each path. One being, this is my lot in life and I hate it. And the other being, this is the context God has placed me in to grow and thrive as a Christian. So what are we doing in our lives to continually set before ourselves that the testing of your faith produces endurance, not just difficulty. So how can trials foster joy? We've had through internal reflection, through faithful endurance, and now through awareness of their purpose. Through an awareness of their purpose. Verse 4, 
And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And here we see that while endurance and steadfastness is crucial and necessary, it's not the ultimate goal. Just like the goal of working out is not the workout itself, but for the fitness and improved health that works in us as we continually engage in it, so it is with the testing of our faith. We're to let this endurance God is working in us through the testing of our faith have its full effect. James says the trials in our lives have a goal that they are driving toward. And that goal or purpose is that we would be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And James reminds us once again of the non-passive nature of this progression. When he says, let endurance have. That verb tense he uses there stresses a, a continual action in progress. And at this point, you're, you're probably noticing a bit of a theme. Consider it pure joy. Bear in mind the testing of your faith. Let endurance have. Lots of doing. Lots of action here. The most literal translation of, of this have its full effect would be something like accomplish its perfect work. But the CSB just translates it as having its full effect, which, which is a good translation. Because it's not that we have some special, specific kind of work we need to engage in, per se, so that the testing of our faith can reach its goal. Instead, this work is that we need to understand the big picture of how God works. How he works out trials in our lives. It's critical that we have this fully orbed view of the end goal and purpose of trials. This is why in the world of construction, before a building even breaks ground, there has already been many hours of planning, discussion, and time spent on architectural drawings so that not only is everyone on the same page, but so that everyone knows what the end goal and result of the building will be. From architects and owners to general contractors, all the different subs, electricians, plumbers, framers, HVAC, concrete crew, everyone needs to be aware of how the finished building will look when it's done. If you go to a job site, all the different subcontractors have their own set of blueprints, and everything they're doing during the day is executing some specific detail that moves that project forward to its result of a completed building. I mean, can you imagine what it'd be like if nobody on the job had any blueprints, nobody knew what the building was supposed to look like? Building walls wherever they wanted, running wire all over the place, I'm sure they'd probably keep themselves busy, but it'd be a busy, a busy work with no focus, with no goal, with no motivation by a future tan tangible goal and purpose. And that's what James is getting at here. We as Christians need to bear in mind the goal and purpose of trials in our life. We need to have a mental framework that allows us to see that there is something bigger and better in mind than just busying ourselves with trying to get through one trial at a time for the sake of getting back to a place of ease and comfort, right? And the mental framework we need to have is that all of the different difficult things we experience, all of them, are moving us forward toward the goal of being made mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And this doesn't mean perfection. We know we'll never attain sinless perfection in this life, but instead, the full effect is that we would be mature, well-rounded, healthy Christians. Right? To quote Sinclair Ferguson, James wants us to have a clean bill of spiritual health. James wants us to be well-equipped Christians so we can have healthy, mature, and, a fruit and fruitful Christian lives. How, how do you view trials in your life? 
you see them part as, as part of God's blueprint to make you mature, complete, and productive? Or at best, a small annoyance, and at worst, a pain so intense that you can't convince yourself it could ever be anything that would serve a purpose. Walking through trials in life is not easy, and God does not mean for it to be easy. James does not say, count your trials great joy because they're actually not as hard as you think they are, so just remind yourself that they're not that big a deal and move on. Trials are hard. We have smaller trials here and there that aren't too bad, but big trials and suffering are incredibly hard. And not just in the moment, but we all know that, that those, when those really big, difficult trials come that we go through in life, they often affect us for years and years to come, not just in a passing moment. I'm confident that most people in this room right now have experienced some sort of suffering that not only hurt in the moment, but you continue to feel the effects of that today. And it hurts, and it's not easy. We're not promised a life void of suffering. We are not promised when trials and suffering come that they will be easy. We are not promised if we just have enough faith that all suffering in our life will turn into happiness and cheerfulness. We are not promised those things. But we are promised, and we can be certain that every hurt, sorrow, trial, and difficulty in this life, absolutely without a doubt, God's purpose for us in the midst of that pain is to make us more and more mature, more and more fruitful, and more and more like Christ. How aware are you in the midst of suffering that God is not only aware of your trials, but he is intentionally bringing you through whatever your trial is in that moment so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing? And in those painful, difficult moments, when the pain seems unbearable, God is not outside of your trouble. And that's something you, you need to hold on to when you're in the thick of it. You can't separate your Savior from your suffering. He has purpose for you in that, and he knows it. Christ knows suffering. He knows the pain of betrayal. Christ knows the fight of temptation. He knows the feeling of a close friend dying. He knows what it is to be separated and feel alone. Yet there's no sweeter joy and, and salve for our pain than to have the riches of the gospel and the fact that we have fellowship and are even united to Christ. To quote the old Scottish preacher Samuel Rutherford, there is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and sores to him. Even in our trials, we have the comfort of Christ. And when nothing else seems stable, we can have comfort that Christ is. He is stable. He's our anchor. So let me close with these lyrics of a song that we'll sing shortly and then during the Lord's Supper when we sing it, we can sing it loudly and full of hope. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm when the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn in the suffering, in the sorrow when my sinking hopes are few I will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let us hold fast to you in the midst of our trials, in the midst of suffering. Let us hold on to you and let our hope rest in you, having an unwavering, steady joy. Amen.